Hello and welcome to Casual Krakoa. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of comicbookherald.com. This is Casual Krakoa, where we go through the X-Men comics released today. Today we got Immortal X-Men number one, baby. It's a good one from Karen Gill and Lucas Wernick and company. We're going to talk about it in detail, okay? Now, if you are here on the live stream, one, be forewarned, this is going to be a spoiler-filled conversation about what happened in Immortal X-Men number one today, Okay, so be prepped for that. And two, if you can hear what I'm saying, see what I'm doing, let me know here in the live chat so that I know everything is up and running smoothly. Thank you very much for being here. If you're here live too, I very much appreciate it. But okay, this was a, a big day, a big test for X-Men comics, and uh, and we have a lot to talk about. So definitely get your questions in as well. The Super Chat is open and available. Thanks to those who participate. And uh, I will prioritize those questions and get to as many as I can. But of course, we got to talk about what happened in this big kickoff to the destiny of X. All right, it looks like everything's going well. Let's do it. Okay, casual Krakoa talking immortal X-Men number one. Uh, and yes, you are welcome for the John Cale 1919 introduction here. If you were here at the very start, uh, that is thematically, thematically relevant as well for Karen Gillen's work here uh, and referenced a handful of times in this comic. So, Immortal X-Men number one, we got writer Karen Gillen, artist Lucas Wernick, colors by David Curiel, letters by Clayton Kells. Um, first thought, first thought on this. One, real good. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Second thought, I'm glad Immortal X-Men doesn't really play with or respond to X-Lives and X-Deaths of Wolverine, right? It's better for it, honestly. And I think what is so refreshing about Immortal X-Men number one today is it feels like uh, a refresh. You know, what is so refreshing is it feels like a refresh just in the sense of like, hey, why are we here? What are we doing? You know, what is the point of all this, right? What did House and Powers establish and what is the Krakoa era? Um, what are we doing here? You know, I tweeted earlier, it feels like you walk you walk into a room, you walk into the kitchen and you're like, wait, wh why am I here? What am I doing? Uh, I forgot what I was gonna do, right? And then just all of a sudden, Immortal X-Men is that it's the clarifying moment. It's that moment of like, Oh yeah, oh yeah, we're here to have a mutant quiet council trying to lead a nation, we're here to have political backstabbing, we're here to explore the immortality of mutant kind, their past, their present, and their future, and we're here to have fun with this crazy amped up version of Mr. Sinister, and that's thankfully what this comic does. I think it is anyone who is familiar with Gillen's Uncanny X-Men run from a decade ago, yes, it's been a decade, you know it's no surprise that he leads with Sinister as the POV character, right? Um, Gillen is the one, and I've said this many times, he made Sinister walk so Hickman could make him run, right? This version of the character, this, this more comedic, um, dramatic version of Sinister, and he's the driver of the book's action here, and it's a fit. It's a great fit, too, because Sinister remains one of the major, major players okay, that we haven't really explored, like, their connections, their ties to the big picture, okay? Moira was obviously the number one example of that for the longest time, but now that cat's out of the bag, if, you know, at the very least. Uh, I feel like it's understating it after Inferno, X-Lives, X-Deaths, and, and even a little bit here with Immortal X-Men, but we still have a lot to do with Sinister, and this comic grounds things very well, okay? So we're definitely going to want to talk about um, what's going on here with Mr. Sinister, what the secrets are. Again, 
this conversation is going to assume that you've read it or know what happens or don't care <laughs> if you get spoiled because we have to talk about the ending. Frankly, the ending of this comic reframes the way it is read the first time around, which is a really cool craft trick, um, I think. Like, the first opening sequences of this comic genuinely read differently knowing how it ends, and I think that's an exciting thing to talk about and a really effective way to do, um, you know, have an individual unit of comic matter, right, and mean something and, and have value. That means, yeah, there's a reason I could read this more than once. Okay, I'm seeing here in the comments you could easily read Immortal X-Men immediately after Inferno number four and not miss a beat. I think that's true. Honestly, I think that's true. I, I also think, like, there's a really good chance that behind the scenes, this was entirely written before X Lives and X Deaths. <laughs> like, like, there's a really good chance that Immortal X-Men number one was done and off to the printers before anything to do with X Lives and X Deaths, right? Probably Gillen was given, you know, in these X Office chats, like, a sense of, okay, what are we doing here? Is there anything I need to be aware of that is going to break the story I'm telling? Um, but otherwise, it just reads, like, basically, like, X Lives and X Deaths didn't happen. So if you were out on that event or you checked out on that event, um, for the moment, you're totally fine. You're totally fine. Uh, Inferno kind of sets the stage for where we're at. I think that is probably true. And again, like I don't generally, I don't like continuity being ignored or, or, or pieces of the puzzle being very quickly passed over. I don't think X lives and X deaths are, are going to be ignored, like for the entirety of the Kurgo era. Like there's some big stuff there. Like, so for those of you who haven't read, you know, that comic ends, X-Deaths ends with Moira turning herself into some version of an Omega Sentinel or a Nimrod or whatever. She doesn't have her mutant abilities anymore. She is now sort of reincarnated as very powerful AI that wants to kill all mutants, okay? Um, she kind of terminated herself. And uh, that's going to come up, <laughs> all right? Probably even in Immortal X-Men down the line. But right now, that's not what we're focused on. That's not what we're doing. We're getting back to like, okay, what's going on in Krakoa? What matters? What are we trying to accomplish here? And what is the point of all this? What is the point of all this? And the point of all this is eternal mutants. It is finding an eternal place for mutant kind to survive and thrive. Okay? That is the point of the Krakoa era. It's not just a temporary, we have our own island, and that's a success. And that's what a lot of the Dawn and the Rain have focused on, is that sort of present-day temporary focus on, hey, we got our island, we have success in the moment, right? But the house and powers big picture of all of this is survival, not just into the next generation, not just into the generation after that. It's survival for mutant kind thousands and thousands of years into the future. Treating this truly, looking at immortal and looking at what that means is incredibly important and one of the most interesting things that can be done with a series. And Kieran Gillen, the writer here, is a great fit for that, right? Not only is he currently writing Marvel's Eternals and doing the best work that's ever been done on the title. Yes, I know Jack Kirby created these characters, okay? But he's, so he's touching in that regard. His creator-owned stuff, like the Wicked and Divine, deals with gods and godlike figures and, and the immortality of these types of creatures. Obviously, he played with this as well back, you know, when I mentioned a decade ago at Marvel when he was doing Uncanny X-Men, Journey into Mystery, working on Loki, working on the Asgardians, obviously playing with immortal godlike figures there as well, okay? So it's a creator who's well-versed in this mythos, who's well-versed in sort of how these stories perpetuate and run over time, and you can tell that. You can tell that. You can feel, without any plot, just from the confidence and the tone and the structure, this is one of the best 
single-issue kickoffs in this era of X-Men, right? There have been a handful that have been quite good. Um, obviously, House and Powers, uh, uh, Sword Number 1, I think was incredible, incredible work by Al Ewing. Um, and, and then this one probably is like, you know, third in that mix. It's probably third in that mix. And again, there's a ton writing on this. There's a ton writing on this because the destiny of X is the third wave of X-Men comics since House and Powers. And it is the only one that is kicking off at a time where the mojo of these X-Men comics is failing, right? Jonathan Hickman, the chief architect, he's out, he has left. We went from Inferno to X-Lives and X-Deaths, Whiplash with sort of what they're doing with Moira there. A lot of fans put off by that. It has its moments, but it also has really bad moments. And the destiny of X needed to step in. It needs to step in and say, here's why we're here. Here's why this was fun in the first place. Come on and enjoy the ride. And that's what Immortal X-Men does. Uh, it does it about as well as I could frankly imagine it happening. Um, and and it, it made me, it, we had a review up on Comic Carol today um, and uh, by, by Salisa, our writer there. And the thing that, that they write there is it made me more excited for this book than I expected to be coming out of it. And I had the exact same experience, right? By the time I get to that final page reveal, I'm more excited. I was already excited for Mortal X-Men. I already, I mean, I've been saying for a while, I have very high expectations. I have very high hopes. And, but I also have very high confidence that this is going to be a good X-Men book, right? I've got high confidence in Mortal X-Men. I've got high confidence in X-Men Red. Um, and I've got high confidence in New Mutants, probably, because it's been doing it. Uh, but beyond that, everything's a little up in the air, right? Oh, and I've got high confidence in Sabretooth because it's already out. And it's already one of the best books of the year. Um, but like other than that in the X office, everything else is a maybe, right? Everything else is tentative, varying degrees. Uh, but I already knew Immortal X-Men was going to be good. I didn't expect to be this excited coming out of it. Uh, and that's great. That's awesome. That's exactly the type of high. That's exactly the type of excitement that I'm looking for in these comic books, right? And in this era of X-Men is to be surprised, to be reminded about why these can be so fun and what we're playing with and all the, the potential and value. I mean, because Hellions has been done for a while, and I know it's only been, you know, maybe, maybe three months now, um, but like I almost had forgotten like, oh yeah, like hanging out with this wild Mr. Sinister is an extremely uh, captivating style of storytelling, you know? And we're firmly reminded of that here, I think, in this issue. So we're gonna talk through the beats. Again, get in your questions, get in your comments here in the chat. All that I ask is you be respectful to those around you um, and we won't you know, have any issues. Uh, but otherwise, you know, I'm gonna try to address whatever questions I have and then just talk through my own thoughts on the comic. Uh, obviously very positive overall. I've got some theories. I've got uh, Sinister Secrets breaks down. Okay, I've got every Sinister Secret already figured out, so don't worry about that. We can talk about it. Um, it, it honestly, like, they weren't that tricky. <laughs> so, uh, it, let's, like, we can talk about what they are. There's a handful where I'm like, okay, maybe we need a theory to solve this. Um, and we can kind of, one thing I want to talk about today is, like, what are the biggest questions that Immortal X-Men raises, right? Um, because it's not all just like, oh, here's where we're going. Like, it raises some new interesting questions about, okay, but why does this event matter or why does this event play out this way? Right? So first off, um, let's, let's talk about, uh, this, the super chat here from, uh, Rod it says, forget about Celine, forget about hope. Krakoa needs Jesus in the quiet council, <laughs> probably Omega level and probably has his ways in magic. There is a tease here by Exodus that the Nazareth, I believe as he refers to him was a mutant. 
okay? Uh, this has gotten a lot of people's attention for obvious reasons because it is not out of the question <laughs> that Marvel would claim Jesus was a mutant. Um, I don't think as a brand owned by Disney, they would go so far as to canonize it um, and, and actually have the media attention that goes with that. But as a joke e thing from Exodus, obviously it's out there. Um, Marvel has done... Like, there's wild stuff in the Marvel... Like, like Santa's a mutant, for example, by certain um, uh, arguments in certain comics, right? Santa's also Odin, if you look at certain comics. Like, like they do... There's strange stuff in Marvel lore that is out there. Um, obviously, Jesus is going to get a lot more attention and a lot more controversy than, uh, you know, the fictional Santa. Um, so, is Jesus a mutant? Uh, I, I, my take on it is Exodus was not alive during that time, okay? Exodus, like, has centuries of history here. And I think that's why this character is going to be especially interesting in the Immortal X-Men, right? All the characters that have sent... not they, they, they don't talk in decades. They talk in centuries, right? Sinister, Destiny and Mystique, apparently, and Exodus. Um, and then you got Apocalypse out there, you got Selene, right? But they're not necessarily on the Quiet Council. Um, all those characters are the most interesting. I think, in this run, uh, because they have mutant history in a way that no one else does on the Quiet Council. Uh, but Exodus, like, he's not actually around until, like, the Crusades. Like, he's not actually around until post-Jesus. Like, he doesn't come around until later. Um, so his assumption or or desire to just claim Jesus as a mutant, that, that actually is very of a piece with the character, right? Um, he's obsessed with messiahs, okay? He, he messiahitized Magneto. In the 90s, he's doing it again with Hope Summers here, the mutant messiah. She's often talked about in those terms during the Second Coming era. Um, it's not surprising that he was assumed that, like, anyone that had that kind of power, that had that kind of religious um, uh, influence, probably also mutant. <laughs> okay? So I wouldn't literalize it too much. I don't expect that's what's happening. But I appreciate the super chat there. I appreciate the comment. Uh, because definitely that is a big... Uh, a big thing to throw out there. <laughs> Casually. Um, and we'll see if it comes up again. My guess is no. Okay, so I talked about, you know, what happens in this comic. Let, let's start, I think, more or less at the top, and let's pull up some of those visuals, some good stuff here from Lucas Wernick. So this comic opens with what is now a trope of sorts in, um, in X-Men comics where uh, two characters meet on a park bench, right? And this is referencing referential to Professor X and Moira in House of X and Powers. We saw this sequence mined for sort of violent, dark comedy in X Deaths of Wolverine, and now we're seeing it um, recycled but repurposed here intentionally with Mr. Sinister and Destiny. And they are here in Paris 1919, also uh, the, the reference point for John Cale's awesome song, Paris 1919, which you may have heard me if you're here at the start, singing aloud. Um, and it's a sequence where you have two mutants showing, one, that they have been around for a whole bunch of time, right? This is post-World War One. Um, and Destiny here, she's talking to Mr. Sinister, and she's basically like, I see a war coming, okay? And there's a nice, there's a nice punny sort of play here on um, an orchestral version, an orchestral song, and I forget the name, I wouldn't have known it prior to this. Uh, it has a variation in there called Nimrod, right? And Gillen uses that, and he references, like, when Destiny heard that, when she heard the Nimrod sequence, um, she had a meltdown, she had a fit, as she describes it in the theater, and Mr. Sinister teases her about this, um, but it's Destiny actually having these visions of things to come, and she's saying there's this war coming, Sinister, and, like, we actually need to be on the same side, 
they actually need to be working together if we're going to get through it. Um, Sinister obviously replies glibly, but then Destiny appears to whisper a secret so powerful that it melts Sinister's brain. Okay, possibly it was something like there was a second shooter in Ford's Theater, but more likely it was a game changer for this Sinister as the master schemer. You know, like, like Moira's version of this that she has with Professor X is, um, is showing him psychically all of her lifelines, showing him we always lose, right? She actually has like visuals. Destiny just tells Sinister something, or, or as far as we know, that's what happens. I'm get, my, my initial reaction to this was like, okay, maybe it's something along the lines of you're a clone or you're not the real Sinister. Um, or we've had this conversation 75 times, right? And all, a lot of this is now based on what we see in the ending of this, which obviously we're going to talk about. So Sinister, again, like his brain literally melts. He's muttering, you're a ghost as he dies. So again, like cementing the parallels, the John Cale's awesome Paris 1919, again, the location in your when this scene takes place. Uh, it makes me think he's now realizing he's merely like a simulcrum trapped in a test Moira timeline meant to deliver data back to the real Sinister we're following in present-day Krakoa. Okay, and what am I talking about there? Why does that make any sense? Well, it makes some sense because the very end of this comic, the very end of this comic, reveals that Mr. Sinister is cloning Moira's, okay? We are in an era now, the second age of Krakoa, where everyone on the Quiet Council knows about Moira. Only Professor X and Magneto knew, then in Inferno, Emma finds out, Mystique and Destiny find out, now everyone on the Quiet Council knows, okay? And Mr. Sinister, having learned this, started cloning Moira's, and he's using them to gather data about what's going to happen, right? How things are going to play out, and then have it sort of re-augmented back into his own brain, and he's just cloning all these Moira's. I think we are on the 26th at the start of this comic book, okay? So, like, that is his secret. He finds out about Mara's abilities. Again, Emma tells the entire Quiet Council in her rage towards Professor X and Magneto for keeping the secret in the first place, and he begins cloning Moira's and experimenting on her ability to reset and relive life. So, whereas we are now familiar with Sinister basically ensuring immortality by transferring consciousness to various clones of himself, you know, sort of manufacturing godhood, right? That is now extended to replaying moments of a timeline with the knowledge of how things played out previously using cloned Moiras. And listen, this could go in a million different directions. It's incredibly exciting because of that. If nothing else, it temporarily sets up a fascinating competitive relationship between Sinister and Destiny, with both able to play out versions of the future and think they have the best understanding of how events are likely to unfold. It's cool, too, how this reveal reframes the entire issue, right? On the first read, Sinister's referring to himself as 26, with the implication being some familiar Sinister clone scheme, right? I assumed he was the 26th Sinister, and he thinks he knows everything uh, how, with how Magneto's replacement on the Quiet Council will play out. Um, you know, and, and like in the moment, so like Magneto steps up and he says, I'm stepping down from the Quiet Council. This is not surprising, right? We've seen Magneto teased in the X-Men Red solicits. We know he's going to be a part of that book written by Al Ewing. Um, so like, again, it's not a shock. Like if you, like he's not in the, the teaser image, right? There are all these threads that, that, that part of it's not surprising, but Sinister thinks he knows exactly how the sequence of voting for Magneto's replacement is going to happen in the moment in the moment, I just took this to be like, well, he's sinister, right? He knows things and has secrets. He always has. Um, but what we learn by issue's end 
is he thinks he knows how it will play out because he's already received data from 25 Moiras telling him what's going to happen. And that's what makes the irony of him getting it wrong so delicious. And it what it's a huge part of what makes this comic moving forward so incredibly exciting is that Sinister's back pocket is not just that he's working on Chimers anymore, okay, which we know he's been doing through Hellions. It's not just that he's, of course, making clones of everyone and their mother, right? Um, it's that he's got Moira's, and he's using her abilities, and uh, it's going to get weird, and it's going to get wild, but you know what? Like, that's that has come up so much in this era, right? Ever since there was a break with Inferno, and frankly, even before, people like myself, fans like yourself, have been asking, like, well... Okay, but couldn't Krakoa resurrect Moira? Um, you know, couldn't they, like, make a clone of her and use her powers that way? Gillen's actually embracing that challenge, right? He's taking it on here through the lens of Mr. Sinister, who, of course, of course would hear about this power and think, how can I use that for myself in my own schemes? It makes perfect sense. It's fantastic. And it's really interesting. It's going to lead to some exciting stuff. Again, exactly what it'll be, we don't know. Um, but it, it also kind of casts into doubt, like, anything we see here in this book, in Immortal X-Men right now, we don't know, like, exactly which version of reality is happening, how Sinister is tampering with it, um, if it's if it's a clone of his, if he's in one more of his timelines and is going to reset it right. It all gets complicated. He's an incredibly unreliable narrator, as is. Uh, it, and, and, and I think in these very confident excellent creator's hands, that's going to work out. That's going to work out to our benefit, where then when we get to a resolution, um, it's going to, the, all that messiness is going to come together and be something very exciting. So I love that reveal. I love the use of Sinister here. I mean, I think the plan for the first, like, 12 issues, I think it's going to shift between each member of the Quiet Council as a POV. I, I feel like I read that in an interview somewhere. Um, so it's not just going to be sinister all the time. At least that's my expectation. Frankly, I'd be fine with that if it was. <laughs> I think I'd really enjoy that book. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be that book. Nonetheless, we'll know what he's doing in the background, right? We'll know what Sinister's doing. We'll know what he's doing with these Moira clones um, in the background. Now, I think one piece of this that I find interesting is my assumption when I saw that initially was, okay, um, Sinister's got Moira's, but he's probably only got Moira clones ever since he learned about this, right? So let's say two weeks, right? Whatever. But it's like a short-term thing. So the Moira clones, they can't, like, necessarily, like, can he use them to, like, go back to Paris 1919, for example, right? When I'm talking about that theory about him figuring out, like, oh, I'm not the real Sinister, Destiny just told me that. Um, could he use a Moira to do that? That piece, obviously, is, is TBD. Um, the way it's set up, there would need to be, then you'd have to integrate some sort of time travel shenanigans, which again, this is Marvel Comics, you can do that. <laughs> you can find a way, um, but that's not necessarily baked into this. So I'm, I'm curious to see exactly what it does. I think what it, what it means in the short term is Mr. Sinister and Destiny have competing schemes within all the competing schemes of the Quiet Council. They have two of the biggest picture ones, and they also have the resources, Destiny just through her mutant gift to see the different threads of the future, um, to feel like they know the best and most likely way things are going to play out before it happens, right? So that, like, Sinister's Moira clones are a defense mechanism, are a competitive uh, uh, catch-up to where Destiny's already at. And I think pairing these characters in opposition uh, while simultaneously have them playing on the same team is really, really compelling. Um, again, one of the things I was most excited about 
from Immortal X-Men. And the potential of it is, like, Destiny needs to get her due as a character. You know, Destiny has not had many moments, you know, throughout history, right? She's either been uh, purely sort of, like, the, the object of Mystique's desire because she's literally been off the board since 1989, um, or when she was around, you know, she was, she was just kind of, it, it was hard to use her powers, right? You get the occasional issue in the Claremont run. Like, like we're talking a small amount that gives multiple pages to Destiny, that uh, Irene Adler as a character. And I've got a video up on this, right, on the channel, the history of this character. There's a lot to do to make Destiny more interesting, and I think Gillen's on the right track here. And I think this series has so much potential to really, really nail that. So... I'll pause there for a minute. Those are the biggest reveals um, of what Sinister is doing, what Destiny is going on with Destiny, and of course the clones of Moira that come in this comic. Definitely get in your comments here and your questions, and I'll look at what I can. Yeah, I mean, I guess one, I'm seeing the comment here. He's known about Doug, right? We know Sinister has knowledge of what Doug and Warlock and Krakow are doing, uh, so he's probably known about Moira more than two weeks. That's possible too, right? Do you think Sinister has known about the No Place and about Moira before Emma did? Um, because if we if we take that, then all bets are off. Uh, but if you accept that he learned about it from Emma, it was something he actually didn't know, then maybe it's a newer thing. But I get, that's a good point. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that, I think. Uh, this question here from Jason. Does the revelation of Moira at the beginning and cloning at the end legitimize Moira fear of Destiny all the way back to Hox Pox. Moira's fear of Destiny is, I, I think, another thing entirely. I mean, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy on Moira's end, right? She is so afraid of Destiny, um, and she is so scared of what her prophecy might do that it dictates all of her actions in, in this lifeline. Um, she's actually on to a pretty good thing. When Destiny gets resurrected, her powers don't actually change anything, right? In Inferno, Destiny doesn't actually have a vision. She doesn't actually see anything about what Moira's doing. Um, they learn about it from Emma, Mystique and Destiny. You know, it's Moira's fear of Destiny that creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy and her hate and sort of emotion over that that drives her to the position she's in now. So, I mean, right now... I would say there's not not enough has happened to legitimize destiny as this ultimate threat. I think there that's something where there's opportunity. You know, there's something where the, there's opportunity um, in this story to explain like why that would be the case, right? What can she know and say to Mister Sinister that makes his brain melt? These sorts of things show the power of this character. Um, but I don't I don't really think I. It's hard for me to say anything to the effect of Moira was right about anything, and it's going to be that way for some time <laughs> because of X Deaths of Wolverine, right? Like, Moira was a really interesting, complicated, emp empathetic to some degree character going, like, coming out of Inferno, right? There was a lot of looking at what she was going through. And again, like, this is a character, too, that by the end of Inferno, is basically like, yeah, okay, you caught me. My plan was to genocide mutant kind, right? I was going to do it nicely. I was going to cure them, but I was going to force feed, you know, the removal of mutant abilities, right? Like, she's not she's not a hero, okay? Um, but she wasn't literally Cameron Hodging herself into Sentinel Archvillain territory, 
you know? So it's going to take some real work, difficult work, to build back the complexity in the interest level in Moira, I think, um, going forward. And honestly, like, this comic, <laughs> treating her, like, Immortal X-Men, at least as it sets out in this first issue, looks like it's going to treat Moira like the MacGuffin that kind of the everything sense House and Powers has as well. And you know what? It's like, at this point, that might be the best we can get. That might be the best we can get is basically just like, she's not a person. She's a power set. It's a very sinister line of thinking, right? There's whole evil monologues in here about how mutants aren't people. They're just resources. He's got a gun that shoots out Cyclops eyes. <laughs> okay. Do they even shoot lasers when they're shot out? That was not clarified. Are they just eyeball pellets? <laughs> That's real sadistic. Um, it's sadistic either way. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to be done there, and it's it's an interesting question. But no, I, I there's no there's really nothing where I can be like, oh yeah, Mara had a point at this point, you know, like it's it's all bad, <laughs> like every piece of it. So all right, keep the questions coming. I'll I'll answer what I can again as well. Um, let's see what else can we talk about. Uh, okay, so we got Magneto leaving the council. We've got a conversation about who is going to take that spot. Uh, and it's actually a fairly difficult one. Now, I've been advocating for some time, for a while, that one of the key players in this should be Selene. Uh, again, we're talking about characters with tons of mutant history. Selene, arguably the first Marvel mutant. That status means nothing anymore. Like, like the first mutant. Like, just throw that out. Throw it in the trash. Doesn't matter anymore. Apocalypse, Selene, they've both been around for a real long time. Um, but Selene actually shows up here to make a case for herself. Uh, and, and is actually, it's a really strong case. And like, that's, that's why I've been making it, <laughs> you know? Um, she, she knows magic. She's been around forever. She points out like, listen, you lost Apocalypse and you filled the seat with Destiny, but you didn't replace what Apocalypse brought to the table. And that's true. That's 100% true, right? Celine's actually great for that. Um, so I did really dig bringing Celine into the equation. Of course, she loses the seat here. Also, <laughs> we do also have to call out my favorite thing to continue calling out, which is Celine um, ran, uh, uh, she like, whatever, she killed a lot of guys. <laughs> Sling killed a lot of dudes, a lot of humans in the Captain America run by Tanahis Coates. Uh, Shuri shows up to send her back to Krakoa. She was never penalized for that. <laughs> never happened. All right. And listen, the X office can, can play their own games. It's weird to have never mentioned it. Just mention it. Just give an excuse, give a reason. Be like, oh, we gave her a slap on the wrist. She served time with the Hellions for a week. You didn't see it. Say something. It's weirder to say nothing um, and, and just let her off the hook entirely. You don't have to throw her in the pit, clearly. That's not part of the story at this point. Uh, but it's weirder to say nothing, I think. But anyway, Celine loses the vote. She loses the vote uh, to Hope Summers, who basically walks in with the power play of like, hey, the five are the most popular and most important individuals on Krakoa. Um, I am ostensibly their leader. Also, Exodus pitched me on why I should be on the council, and, and he, let's go. Let's do this. And, of course, Hope ultimately makes it um, because uh, Sinister, um, this is a very funny sequence of Mr. Sinister thinks he knows how all these votes are going to go because he has the knowledge of, of a Moira from the future sent back to his brain. How does that work? I don't know. It's comics. It's fine. Um, he thinks he knows how it's going to go, but things don't play out exactly like he thinks they will, right? Destiny surprises him with a vote. It's very funny. Like, the way it's structured is great. Um, but he's surprised, and then he has to switch his vote to get Hope on the council because, and he, he says here, and I quote, let's see if I can find it. Um, I'm going to look for it because I, I have the quote written. 
and it's good. Um, but basically, he's like, I need help on this council because it's going to precipitate some disasters that he wants to happen. Okay. I think one of the biggest things about this issue to look at and to be asking is why does Sinister want the things that he wants? Why are the things that are happening happening, right? Because there are some moments of like, you can just you can just accept that like, okay, the Quiet Council voted and oh, hope's on the Quiet Council. End of story. No, no, no. The real story is not who's going to take over on the council. Hope being on the council makes a ton of sense, right? It's clearly connecting to a Gillen favorite. He wrote Generation Hope in the Utopia ABX era, right? Also makes a ton of sense just from like a Krakoan comics perspective. We've seen for a while now how the five are disconnected from the Quiet Council and frequently at odds with their direction and thinking. So like giving them a seat at the table through hope, it, it felt it feels inevitable. It makes a ton of sense more than anyone else here with the exception, I think, to a degree of Celine. But again, like lost in the humor of sinister misunderstanding these votes is why does he need hope on the council? Why is that important to him? So he says here, it's going to lead to various disasters. Hope being on the council will precipitate. Uh, in the Sinister Secrets, which I want to go through, he also talks about bloodshed in the council chamber. Here's a theory. Here's a theory. Could Sinister have seen, through one of the Moira lifelines, Sabretooth coming up out of the pit, killing Hope, right? He attacks the council. It leads to the death of Hope Summers. What does that do for resurrection, right? With the five... Like, I, I think there's been allusion to maybe Sync could come in in Mirror Hope's abilities, but what if that doesn't work? They've never had to try that, to my knowledge, okay? Could that precipitate some of the disasters that Sinister is trying to get to happen to manifest whatever his ultimate schemes are, right? Just something to think about in terms of why does he want Hope on the council? What's that actually going to lead to? Is it just her voting on certain measures um, and that sort of thing? So that that's what I find especially interesting about that particular piece of the puzzle. But again, it's purely in terms of like having hope on the council. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Like the five need that. They've been at odds with Professor X forever. That's got to happen. Um, so, all right, let's see. We got some super chats here. Who was the one hero when Hickman said 92, 93 characters were villains? I don't know what that means. Uh, if you can provide some clarity on what that is supposed to mean, I will try to answer it. Uh, next super chat. Now I have to read Eternals. Next crossover might be bigger than AVX. Yeah, uh, so first off, I've been saying it for a long, long time. Gillen's Eternals with Isad Ribbage is great. It's really, really great. Listen, I'm not a big Eternals comics fan. I don't even like the game and run particularly much, okay? Um, this Eternals run is really, really great. You should read it just for that reason. It's great stuff. If you like Thanos, read Eternals, okay? That's a new connection we get to make. That's fun. That's exciting. Gillen's doing awesome work right there. And yes, it's going to tie into, it's going to overlap with X-Men. Immortal X-Men, Eternals, all the Gillen written stuff, it's all coming together in Judgment Day, which is coming this summer. It's AXE they're doing. They're doing this Axe Judgment Day thing at Marvel. That's Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, okay? We got a three-way event, and what kind of three-way isn't exciting, right? I think we can all agree. Um, so Judgment Day is going to be exciting. I, I have high hopes for what that event can be, because again, you have two, and again, we actually have an, an issue of Immortal X-Men now where we can say this, we have two good comics, really good comics, two of Marvel's best, coming together, building to an event, and that tends to lead to at least interesting events, at least interesting, um, and that's one of the sinister secrets here as well. So, all right, we got we got clarification here from Patrick. When Hickman was asked about what characters would appear in Hox Pox, he said there would be 93. When asked how many villains would appear, he said 92 which implies only one character would be a hero. 
<laughs> Where's this from? I've never heard about this. Uh, and I'm not I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun of this this uh number. I I this I have no familiarity with this idea that there's uh 93 heroes and 93 villains. Um I, I don't know, like that kind of doesn't mean anything in this era, right? Like this categorization of heroes and villains in Krakoa, like we've kind of done away with that. That's kind of the point of the Krakoa era of X-Men. Um so I don't know, what's what's the implication here is that there's a missing villain or something from the roster i i don't know do we think there's an x-men that's still missing i mean the the missing mutants thing is still a thing right uh we've got um uh absalom mercator mr m probably another world somewhere that doesn't come up in a minute (laughs) okay uh that's an omega level mutant the only missing omega level mutant we got uh nate gray of course we haven't seen nate gray in a minute um i've done videos on on missing mutants. I don't know how many of them still are. Uh, I don't think we've seen Evan Sabiner, even though he should be fair game now, uh, with, with again, one of Hope's fives led protests. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what those numbers are supposed to mean. Um, I, I gotta, I'll have to look that up. I'm not really sure what that's talking about. I also, that doesn't really sound like a thing Hickman would do, like count out a specific amount of characters. Um, I feel like he was probably being facetious because he would do that. Uh, but yeah, okay, if I, if I learn more about it, I'll try to come back to it. Maybe there's more to say. I'm seeing from Comic Breakdown here, this comic is amazing, but as you said, we don't know if we can trust anything we are seeing. Love your reviews, but thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, like, like don't don't believe everything Mr. Sinister tells you. I think a pretty good, pretty good life advice here from old Papa Dave. Um, <laughs> I'll try to give that from time to time. Uh, I'm seeing here, just total side note, did you like the Dark Ages miniseries that just ended? Haven't touched it. Have not touched it. I haven't read a single issue. Uh, if enough, if I get five people in the comments that say, Dave, read Dark Ages, I will go read Dark Ages, and I will let you know what I think of it. Uh, that is a promise. So, okay, let's talk Sinister Secrets, because um, I do want to, to go through sort of what happened here. Um, I don't think there's anything super major that we missed, frankly, in terms of plot points in Immortal X-Men. Again, if you haven't read it, um, first off, thanks for being here. Uh, if you uh, obviously have and are here and still want to talk about it, this is great. I think it's continued to be good, and I have a ton of confidence in Karen Gillen as a creator. I mean, that's the thing that, like, so I've been talking about this for weeks now in kind of the buildup, but, like, when Karen Gillen was on Uncanny X-Men a decade ago, um, that was not the same Gillen that we know now, okay? Like, that was not the same writer. He was not in the same place in his career. He had done some good comics, right? I like Phonogram a lot. Um, but in that decade's time, Gillen has done, I would say, like, all his best work, okay, um, since that time when he was on Uncanny X-Men, right? You have Wicked and Divine, you have Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, which is not just a good comic, but, like, a really important comic of the past decade. Obviously, right now, you've got Die, you got Once in Future, you got um, some others I'm sure I'm missing, okay? The creator has done, and obviously Eternals has been great, right? Like So, like, Gillen has come a long way since his original Uncanny X-Men run, which has great stuff. The Everything is Sinister arc, the first three issues, is great. But it's also real and consistent. It gets tied up in Avengers vs. X-Men in some big ways. Um, it's it's not a flawless run by any measure. It's not one of my favorite X-Men runs, I wouldn't even say. But there's really good stuff in there. But, like, this is a creator that is dedicated to craft, that is really interested in how to make the best comics they can make. And, like, you're going to see the best of them now a decade later. You know, it's, it's that thing of, like, 
it, it's not exactly this, you know, because it's it's a, people in different points in their lives. But it's like you know a rookie, like rookie basketball player versus you know LeBron on the Cavs in two thousand six versus where he is in two thousand sixteen, right? Like there's a, there's a dominance, there's a there's a craft, there's an understanding of the game that comes to creators as they do just get more reps, right, and just play more games, um, and that's what we're gonna get the benefit from here in Immortal X Men. Uh, so, and again, like I, I tweeted this earlier today too. It's like name a creator right now who has a better mix of creator-owned stuff and licensed stuff than Kieran Gillen. It's incredibly difficult, okay? It is incredibly difficult to name someone with a better mix of creator-owned works and licensed comics, okay? James Tynion had the crown before he gave up Batman, arguably still in the mix because he's going to be doing Sandman, and technically the Nice House on the Lake is a, is a black label thing, but that's not actually part of the you know license. Um, who else do I have in this mix? Cy Spurrier. Could make a case this year. A lot of interesting Spurrier stuff going on. Um, you've got uh, Suicide Squad Blaze is good stuff, by the way. Um, let's see. What else? What else? Chip Zdarsky in the conversation. Definitely in the conversation here. Okay, but it's a small list. Ron V. I've got Ron V in there. It is a small, small list. Kieran Gillen's right at the top. Okay. I'm seeing enough now of Go Read Dark Ages. Uh, I'm actually seeing Go Read Light Ages, which if there's a satire comic that is making fun of dark ages i will read that as a companion piece um just send me a link <laughs> but i'm seeing enough read dark ages that now i feel like i have to do this i gotta say like my i like deceased a lot um i am i'm actually a huge tom taylor and justice fan as well right like i have greatly enjoyed his visions for universes i think the tom taylor and justice model would be great for marvel not literally doing a story of like, what if Captain America killed the Red Skull? Um, but like giving a creator with a lot of vision, like the reins to do their Marvel Universe. I think that would kill, you know? Like that's that's my perpetual pitch is like give a creator with vision, a Hickman, a Gillen, give them like, hey, it's their Marvel Universe number one. They do 50 issues of it over the course of whatever amount of time it takes. Um, but they just own the whole universe, right? And they just get to do like an out of continuity thing. I think that model would kill. I think that'd be amazing. And it would also be like, that's so new reader friendly, right? Like that's the thing with Taylor's Injustice. It is so new reader friendly because it's all these archetypes of certain characters. And it's also just Taylor's vision the entire way through. And obviously like, yes, it comes out of a video game tie-in, but then it just becomes like, hey, it's Tom Taylor's DC universe, you know, with that video game premise. And it winds up being really good and really successful as a result. Uh, so, okay, but that said, like, I don't know, like, Dark Ages, I just, I have no enthusiasm for, I suppose, for some reason, I, but enough people are saying it, that I'll read uh, Dark Ages and also Light Ages, I guess, um, but I, I can't promise anything. <laughs> Cannot promise anything. Um, okay, so what else do we got here? Uh, oh, right, Sinister Secrets. Okay, so Sinister Secret number one, the answer, and I don't have the questions in front of me, um... I don't know enough about how to stop the image slideshow that I have in front of you <laughs> to figure it out. But the answer to number one is definitely just like, oh, it's Sinister talking about um, he's got a scandal. He's got a young lady with him in his lab. Uh, that's Moira, right? It's got to be Moira. Okay. Um, it, it can't be anyone else and it can't be romantic, <laughs> right? Like there's nothing worse <laughs> and I don't think Gillen would touch this than like someone having a romantic relationship with Mr. Sinister. Um, so we roll that out. The scandal is, of course, he's got private company with the clones of Moira McTaggart that he has made for himself. Sinister secret number two. 
Does the fiery newcomer think that the Quiet Council means one must use silencers on all your automatic weapons? That's a reference to Hope. Okay, that's a reference to Hope Summers. Uh, for those who are less familiar, Hope, protege of Cable, grew up on the run, learning how to use weapons and, and survive with good old Nathan Summers. Uh, Cable definitely, or, or Cable has taught Hope to put silencers on her weapons. She's going to bring that to the council. Number three, this is one of my favorites. Writer's block is a terrible thing. Rejoice. The muse is going to strike someone who hasn't written a major work for over 100 years. That's going to be Destiny's Diaries. That is going to be Destiny's Diaries. That's exciting. That's interesting to me. Okay, I talked about this last week with Blurred. But, um, like, dropping that teaser of Moira chilling with the Destiny's Diaries at the end of X-Men number 20, and then getting through Inferno. And, and at the end of that, too, they were like, Inferno, coming this summer. Also named Destiny's Diaries. And then Destiny's Diaries didn't come up once. Not once. Nobody talked about him. Not Destiny. Not Moira. None of the information in those diaries was used. That sucked. <laughs> like, that was a real bummer. It was purely just a cool visual. It was purely just a cool visual. They had nothing to do with them. Um, bring them back, Ellen. Bring them back. I would love, love, love to see that. And I think that's what the Sinister Secret is definitely teasing here, which is exciting. Okay, number four, the dress code this year is huge diplomatic egg on your face. The queen is most miffed, but at least she gets to get her revenge on a certain council member. The queen here would be the white queen, Emma Frost, who, of course, runs the Hellfire Gala. Uh, I would have to imagine revenge on a certain council member would be Professor X. Who here has scorned Emma more uh, because of hiding the secret? Obviously, Magneto's off the Quiet Council now, so I think that leaves our boy Charlie um, obviously, as far as what the specific diplomatic egg on your face is, I do not know. We'll find out at the Hellfire Gala, but obviously I think Emma's going to get revenge on Charlie X. Five, it's Judgment Day. Let's hope we're not being judged for our spelling choices. It's Judgment, you ruffians. Uh, this is purely a teaser for Axe Judgment Day, as we talked about, which, uh, yeah, as it turns out, there's a U.S. and a U.K. spelling of Judgment um, and there's clearly going to be some kind of revolutionary war over who actually has it right. Um, right now, I, I alternate at times. I think I'm, it's most natural for me to include the E as well, a la writing the full word of judgment. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things. You've got to pick a side. All right, number six. Is an island nation going to be destroyed? Maybe, but don't worry, it's not ours. Okay, is not going to get destroyed. Uh, could this mean more terror for Terra Verde? Uh, maybe. My guess here is Madripoor. Uh, I, I think this is probably going to refer to Madripoor, which obviously has been, you know, has had Hominus Ferendi versus the Marauders for a minute. I think if you're going to take out an island in Marvel, it's probably going to be a fictional one. Um, and I, I think, you know, the Inhumans aren't on an island anymore. Are they, where are, the Inhumans aren't anywhere right now, I guess. <laughs> I guess that doesn't that doesn't help at all. So my guess here is Madripoor. Okay. Number seven. Which blue mutant is going to see red? Uh, the most obvious answer here would be Nightcrawler, back on Mars with Legion. But I definitely am curious if anyone has any other theories, okay, who that could be. Um, you know, we're talking blue mutants. Obviously, we could bring Apocalypse into the mix. Um, could Apocalypse come to the people of Araco on Mars? That's more exciting, I think. That's more interesting if it's that. as Because otherwise, it's just like, if it's Nightcrawler going to Mars, that's just like, hey, Legion of X is coming by Cy Spurrier. 
That's just like a very simple book tease. Apocalypse, though, meeting back up with the Iraqo people, um, that's actually a big deal. That's actually a big deal. Um, so that would be good. Uh, I see here by Jason Beast getting clapped. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> Put a bow on this. I have no idea what this is going to play like. Like, it's going to be like 40 minutes of no conversation, no video, but a killer live chat. We did. I did hop into the live chat, and the live chat was still going for, <laughs> for a while there. Uh, so maybe that's maybe that's what it'll play back for for everyone else. Um, but otherwise, I did have to pop back on. My internet just came back. Uh, just totally crashed today. We got storms in the area, and uh, clearly, I was saying something that that Beast did not approve of, and they shut me down. I got too close to the truth, and yet again, they shut me down. But I wanted to join now, just to say thank you for joining. Thanks for listening. Immortal X-Men was very good. Enjoy. <laughs>